You're listening to Code Punk with Bill Ahern and Michael Zool, a podcast about the intersection between programming, technology, and the digital lifestyle. How's it going, Michael? It's going good. Um, unfortunately for all of our listeners, this is not a hacking episode. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we covered a couple of uh, 80s and 90s uh, hacking extravaganzas in the last couple of episodes, which actually connected nicely with some of the stuff that we did towards the tail end of last season, um, you know, last year. Uh, this is a, a really interesting episode I wanted to tackle um, because it deals with kind of, uh, I've been calling it the cult of the singularity uh, simply because there seems to be some, I don't know if you call it like science worship, um, but this idea that technology, no matter what, will just save us from everything that's that's going uh, wrong with the world. And I mentioned this because, I mean, there is a, there is a group out there called Singularity University, and I'm not going to disparage them at all. It's actually from Peter H. Diamandis. Uh, he has a fantastic book called Abundance, where he talks about um, how things are getting better. Actually, a great book to read if you want to be optimistic about where we're headed in the future. And he, he does kind of like a, it, I guess it's like a, it's like a Y combinator for business people. And, um, you know, you go there, you, you pay for that to be taught by, um, some very intelligent people. Um, there's a lot of, uh, good people working with the company. I think Wake Ray Kurzweil is, is a part of them. And, um, uh, Ramaz Nam, uh, who's actually a science fiction author, but he's, he's, uh, very good when it comes to like climate science and energy policy and a handful of other people. So they, they do have a lot of good teachers and they kind of like, you're basically looking to figure out what your moonshot is and how you can make the best impact on an exponential scale. So of course, Diamandis is um, the president and founder of the X Prize, which finds people to fund these moonshot initiatives. And of course, the um, one that they're most famous for was the uh, the the X Prize for you know space exploration for for getting a rocket up into space. And the person who won that that technology was bought by uh, Virgin. And that became Virgin Galactic. Uh, so he has a pretty positive uh, track record when it comes to creating some of these initiatives. But what's interesting is I actually I did participate in one of their online courses, and it was it was pretty expensive. It was like eight hundred dollar online course. And what it struck me as was a very surface level introduction to. Um, emerging technologies and how they thought the this formula of exponential growth, if you focus on digital technologies, digital emerging technologies, um, you can make a lot of money off of and change the world. And uh, they have other programs too, because of course, Diamandis, interestingly enough, had his own program called Abundance 360, where I think he charged people like... $20,000 a year or something. And it was like what? a bunch of, yeah, it was like a bunch of seminars and, and everything. And then he did an abundance digital, which is $1,500 a year. And eventually Singularity University bought abundance digital. So one company has bought another company of his, I'm not quite sure how that works. Maybe that's why he's a multimillionaire. I'm not. Um, yeah, you but, have a battery. He's charging $20,000 <laughs> for a seminar, man. But there's, there's, man. A lot, there's, a, there's a lot of the same information in Abundance Digital that you would get from Singularity University. A lot of convergence in some ideas. And a lot of it is this idea of exponential growth. Now, 
I'm not a huge fan of Ray Kurzweil. I think he has a lot of good ideas, but as far as a futurist goes, um, you know, he's, he's wrong more often than he's right. Um, but that's all futurists. So we only actually remember them for the things that they got right, not the things that they got wrong. Um, and I know that, uh, I believe Douglas Hofstadter, uh, Gertel Escher Bach was, um, a critic of his. And of course, Kurzweil is telling us that, you know, singularity is coming, whatever that may be. Different people have different interpretation of it. And of course he thinks we're going to mind meld with the machines of AI and, you know, birth ourselves into a universe of godliness. I'm not going to say, I mean, I don't know that's exactly what he says, but he has a lot of books like this. And don't get me wrong. I, I have some of his books. I actually, yeah, um, I read enjoy, spiritual machines. I enjoy his work. Um, but I question, I, I see it more as a philosophy than, um, obviously hard science. And I, I draw some of this into question because I'm seeing a lot of it in Silicon Valley, this idea that technology itself will solve everything. And all we have to do is digitize and democratize, and then we'll get this exponential growth. And no matter what, you know, we'll solve all problems. We'll live forever. And uh, I mean, I think that's based on some fundamental flaws. Um, most recently, there was a, a program on National Geographic of all places called Year Million. And I'm like, uh, every single episode they have to define what year million means because it's not year one million. They're just describing it as this concept where we've gone past the singularity and all things are possible. And there's a handful of episodes when you talk about artificial intelligence, they talk about life extension, uploading your consciousness into a computer, alien civilizations, harnessing electricity, not stuff I would generally think to find on National Geographic, more things I would expect to find on a sci-fi channel. It's not to say it's not based on hard science. It's just extremely far out there and seems more like a, a vision, you know, of the future or just a, a, a vision shot, a moonshot of, of possibilities based on if we did have exponential growth rather than based on reality. And I'm sure you've seen some of this too creeping up. And I was curious as to what your opinion was on some of this. I've always liked Kurzweil. Um, you know, the, the man is clearly intelligent. Uh, I'm not, not that he needs, you know, my blessing, right. But he's, you know, just about the guy who's also invented like synthesizers. And I remember, um, he, this was, I guess, early aughts. He had a website where he tried to create an interactive sort of um, AI, and that's got more of the, more air quotes around it than what we talk about as AI today, which is sort of like, you know, actionable, you know, machine learning stuff, right? Like machine learning will grind the data and then AI acts on it. And that's kind of how we're using it today loosely. But back in the early aughts, I really always took umbrage with people calling something AI when I was still going by the classical definition. And um, Kurzweil had a website where he tried to create, modeled after himself. Um, what's up? You there, Mike? Yeah. Okay. All right. I thought you started to say something. Um, 
So he modeled this um, this sort of like face uh, uh, after himself, and because because Kurzweil is sort of really fixated with like um, life extension technology and living forever, uh, you almost get the sense that he's kind of got this fear of mortality, right? Which and when you start thinking about that, at least for me, as much as I enjoy some of his big moonshot ideas, like hey, yeah, think as big as you can, right? Because you all you all you do from that point on is scale back. So think of the biggest ideas you can, and that's where you start from. Um, then refactor backwards, I guess. But he had on the site, um, you could talk to it and it would like, it would, uh, I think he was trying to build some sort of engine that would allow it to respond in real time using, I guess, really crude sort of machine learning algorithms then. And we didn't, that wasn't even a term then. But um, he always had these like crazy ideas. And I, I don't mean to call them crazy. They're not crazy. They're just um, ambiguous to the point where the reach exceeds the grasp, perhaps, on any sort of rational breakdown of any of it. I always did enjoy them. Um, I've seen people call him a kook, and I, I always disagreed with that assessment. Um, science and technology always needed the big thinkers and the people willing to kind of throw out the, mo- the most outrageous concepts on the table, because you never know, right? The Wright brothers were probably called crazy, and now we're flying around all the time. So, you know... Um, I don't really think that there's such a thing as too big, but, you know, I think Kurzweil's biggest thing is is that he doesn't seem to temper his ideas. Like to me, he always seemed like this is going to happen or this is how it's going to be. It's inevitable as opposed to. Right, "Hmm, right. There's a likelihood here or, you know, what if for him, it's like this is going to happen. We're going to, you know, mind meld with A.I. and stuff. And uh, I always found that to be a little bit um, radical, you know, for somebody who otherwise had some neat ideas. Yeah, and and it's 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 funny that you bring it up because I'm, yeah yeah I mean I, like I said I I actually enjoy Kurzweil but you're right there is that inevitability in uh, the way that he writes and the way that he talks and and he was on Year One Million Peter H D Monis was but so was Michio Kaku who is obviously a highly intelligent individual he was one of the founders of of uh, string theory and um, you know he's on there and I always enjoyed his ideas of the future um, because uh, he doesn't necessarily temper uh what he thinks either uh but he's often um at least grounding it in you know the scientific fact that he's been able to establish over the years of his career one of my problems is that sense of inevitability it's because a lot of what i'm seeing being sold is that inevitability and it's that we are definitely seeing exponential growth and what i don't like is that they're using this exponential growth as a law of nature but it's it's not it's not a law of nature it's it's not even a law and in fact when we talk about this exponential growth that they're referring to they're most often referring to moore's law and moore's law only deals with transistors on a chip so when right when, when moore's law was created it was specifically about transistors on a chip they get smaller and smaller and smaller it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and therefore we end up having more powerful computers you know better televisions and anything that actually deals with transistors on a chip but we've fast come to the point where Moore's law is slowing down there's only so many transistors that you can you know minimize and actually put on a chip before you're 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 running into some serious problems yeah and And, we are at that point of diminishing returns now Right. And so when I hear people talk about kind of that form of exponential growth as if it's a universal law on all things, 
that's not correct. And then the other problem that I often have, and I know you have this problem too, um, and this is actually brought up in, I think, the very first or second episode of of Your Million on on National Geographic, is this fear of artificial intelligence. They're going to get so smart, they're going to get so powerful that they're just going to wipe out humanity and we need to merge with them in order to survive. And for one, that depends on exponential growth, which we know has already slowed. And we have to realize that much of the success of what we're calling artificial intelligence today, um, we're actually looking at two things. We're looking at term frequency and pattern recognition. And both of these things are the direct result of those transistors getting smaller and smaller because our CPUs and our GPUs have gotten more powerful and we got larger data sets. So we have all of this information to process and the things that actually process with them. But there's already people talking today about the potential of another AI winter because all of our successes, all of the things that we're doing in deep learning is really based on this pattern recognition and using deep neural networks with backpropagation and that's you know, been the huge success has been this backpropagation. And even the, the founder of, of the method of backpropagation is basically saying that, um, you know, we need to rethink what we're doing. And I recently finished reading um, uh, Gary Marcus's Rebooting AI. And I don't even have this book on our notes because I just finished it. And it was funny because he's actually a psychologist and he was talking about all of the areas in artificial intelligence where even though the news articles are talking about how wonderful and how successful all these things are, there are some serious issues with the way in which it's capable of understanding language or the complexities of language and inference. And somebody, I forget who it was, he he told a story about one uh, one of these people who talks about how if you have a an artificial intelligence that's just getting smarter and smarter and artificial intelligence purpose is to make paper clips and all they're ever supposed to do is make paper clips. They're going to use up all of the resources needed to make paper clips. They're then going to mine all of the resources possible to make paper clips. They're then going to travel the universe and find all of the areas in which they have the resources to make paper clips. And so ultimately they're going to start breaking down human beings and turning human beings into paper clips <laughs> because they need the raw materials. And so this is an actual thing that somebody is talking about the show, why, you know, there's some legitimate fear over artificial intelligence. And Gary Marcus says, you know, we go through all of this and we're making this assumption that we build this highly intelligent artificial intelligence that's capable of interstellar travel. But then we make the assumption that it would never think about why the heck am I making all these paper clips to begin with? So, so we're able, we're, we're, we put this intelligence on this artificial intelligence to say that it would have this ultimate drive to continue to make paper clips. It's just su- such an overwhelming drive that it'll, it'll conquer interstellar travel, but never question why it's creating a bunch of useless paper clips that nobody needs. It's <laughs> actually brilliant. <laughs> right? So, I mean, there, there's, and there's, I see a lot of that. So, I mean, our successes are based largely on recent advances where Moore's Law is slowing down. And so, there's, it's highly possible that until we reboot our ideas of what we need to do for AI when it comes to things like, you know, cognitive science and linguistics, we're already getting pretty close to another AI winner unless we could find some other technological advancement to continue along our, you know, our deep learning path. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I love that there is this, um, and so I kind of want to tie that into my thing is, you know, the concerns about, and you hear Elon Musk raise those concerns about um, the fear of AI. What will AI do when it's unchained, from when it no longer sort of is taking instructions from us and is now, you know, its heuristics have gotten to a level where it's making its own decisions, you know, it's it's drawing its own conclusions and then making actions based on that. Um, and we project our own sort of flaws onto it, which in part is important to recognize that if we, and we face this problem all the time now, just with the data sets that we have, where we talk, we've talked about this extensively in other episodes about how data isn't um, unbiased, you know, um, data sets will be shaped according to how we perceive the world as we gather the data. And so if that's the data that we're feeding uh, AI, for example, to learn and make decisions, then of course it will have our own intrinsic biases. Um, but the funny thing is, I love that that's like the thing that he points out, you know, that you're illustrating is that it will do all these amazing things, but it will never take a moment to assess purpose, right? Just I have an instruction and I'll build all these great technologies, um, but I won't ever think about the reason why I'm doing it or will never come into part of my my algorithm. And I and again, again that that's the thing that made me think about how we project, right? Because we think that we get so locked into a goal that we never really think about, um, I guess, um, like the ontology of it. Like what, why did, does this exist and why does this exist and what purpose does it serve? Um, that's really interesting to me. It's a really brilliant point. I love that. And, and, you know, on the flip side of all that, while we talk about National Geographic's foray into the uh, quasi-science with how they view, you know, the the singularity or what's beyond the singularity. And, of course, we're talking about, you know, Kurzweil and Diamandis and how they view this exponential growth of, of everything, you know, bringing us to this, this perfectly abundant world. There is an absolutely fantastic program on YouTube originals called the age of AI. And it's hosted by Robert Downey Jr. And if you have not had the opportunity to watch this, it is very well done. Um, I think it's about eight or nine episodes. And unlike year million, which kind of gave us this, you know, in the future, we'll all live forever. I mean, this starts off with, um, I mean, there's an episode in there. It's basically about a football player with a degenerative disease. And it's talking about how Google is um, working with him in order to, to bring a voice back to him. It's basically finding ways to give speech recognition and to uh, give a voice back to those who can no longer speak. And then there's another one that, um, you know, a rock climber who um, ended up losing one of his legs. Apparently he went to college or high school or whatever with a, with a, a guy who's now an MIT professor who lost both of his legs in a rock climbing accident. And the advancements that they've made at, at MIT in some of the cybernetics have created a, a you know, feet with um, gears and articulation that run off of the muscle along with an experimental, you know, muscle procedure when they amputate the leg that makes it so that you, feel like you have a foot again and it's certainly a bionic foot it's absolutely amazing and so what it talks about and what it shows is near term not exponential growth not we're going to live forever we're going to you know merge with ai ai is going to solve every problem that we have but the here and now and within the next five years so i mean if anybody has the opportunity to actually watch that program i highly recommend it um because it's and of course there's 
you know, a, a lot of it, you know, kind of looks at some of the Google programs because, of course, you know, YouTube is owned by Google, um, but it's just really well done, really put, uh, really well put together and kind of shows you what a future could actually look like within the next five to 10 years instead of thinking about 100 years or a million years from now. Yeah, you know, it gets me thinking, okay, so we're talking about the, the idea of the cult of singularity, or that the idea that um, there are some people who think, or at least mostly think, that technology can solve all, if not most, of our problems. And obviously, there are some issues that uh, technology appears to exacerbate right now. Uh, uh, wealth disparity. Um, you talk about like the um, Uber and all the sort of delivery services, you know, and how... Um, you know, these people don't have unions. And so they're working really hard for low wages. And even though it's called a gig economy, and maybe one argument can be made that, oh, well, it's great. I don't have a boss, but you have no insurance and you wear down your car to pick people up and you drive everyone all over the place. And these apps are just like taskmasters, you know, and I've heard complaints from delivery people from Uber Eats about, you know, I came all the way across town for seven bucks. It's not even worth it. Right. So clearly technology is not solving a problem there, but is it a technology thing or or is it the way that human beings aren't shepherding the technology correctly? So I wanted to ask you, like, what – give me a comparison of some things right now, some serious social issues that technology is solving, and then an example of one that it's really failing at doing. And is that a failure of technology or the people who, like, are maintaining it? Well, I mean, uh, look at what kind of we went over in the last uh, Bots and Beer newsletter. Uh, we talked about – kind of automation and we talked about the gay economy and automation is doing exactly what it should be doing and i always go back to you know douglas ruskoff's um cnn article where he was talking about you know you know automation and and ubi and jobs and he's like um let's let's kind of be honest here do we really want jobs we want money we want to be able to buy things but is it jobs that we really want and he was kind of being tongue-in-cheek there with you know some of these jobs that nobody actually wants but they're there because you need the labor and and i'm of the opinion that automation is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing if there is a job that can be automated you should be doing it if there's a job that's too dangerous but robotics can take care of it we should be using the robotics to do it the problem is that we've based our economy on this idea of open free markets and exponential growth. So I'm not sure our current government, social, and economic uh, programs cover what happens when you have massive automation. You always say that, well, you know, we automate things, but then the technology creates more jobs. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe we autumn. I mean, who wants, honestly, if I can go into McDonald's and use the kiosk, now I don't go to McDonald's that often, but I do know that they have kiosks, which is why I'm bringing this example <laughs> up. But if I can go to McDonald's and use a kiosk and not interact with the person, I'm going to. Like, why, why would I, why would I not do that? Why, why would that person behind the counter want to have to wait on me for their paycheck and deal and, and deal with me and all of my various configurations of whatever sort of fish sandwich or, or the tr <laughs> Trump special, you know, Big Mac and fish, fish fillets I, I want to, you know, have like, I, I don't know if somebody wants that job. They need it, but do they really want it. So technology is doing its job, but 
Our society has not evolved yet to compensate for what technology is doing. The gig economy is giving some people some freedom. Then we talk about healthcare and it's like, well, you know, they're not being you know, paid appropriately. They're not receiving health care, not receiving benefits. And then California wants to pass a law. And should these people have health care? Should they be compensated appropriately? Should they receive benefits? Absolutely. But then we have to start thinking, well, should your benefits be tied to your job? Because, I mean, and John Oliver actually had an absolutely fantastic um, episode of uh, his program on HBO that I think was just trending on on uh, Twitter today. Um, and, and so if you're listening to this episode, it was trending on Twitter on February 17th. Um, <laughs> but he was basically talking about Medicare for all. And the last point he wanted to make was there's a lack of mobility you get locked into your job because you're scared that you're going to lose your benefits. So oftentimes you stick with a job that you don't want because it provides the healthcare benefits that you need. And so really should we be uncoupling those benefits from the job and therefore the gig economy maybe becomes more attractive because you can work when you want to, but your benefits are being paid elsewhere. And that is takes a huge shift. I mean, we basically live in a, I mean, really, we have a one political party, but we have one political party with two different ideas on how to handle social issues. And what we end up with is kind of a hard time making positive change. And so even though our technology may or may not be growing exponentially, it's certainly growing faster. Our ability to adjust the economic and the governmental systems that we've put in place to um, parallel technology to to siphon off from technology however we want to, to describe that interaction it's not coping well and so i think our failure is our inability to experiment with some of our social structures in order to see what better benefits society today and that's a rather timely too you know talking about what can technology fix what can it not fix um and this this sort of diverges a little bit, so I won't linger on it. But it is interesting that this is for the first time in the Iowa caucuses we attempted. I say we as a society attempted to vote with phone apps. As far as I know, that's the first time we've tried to do that, and it didn't go so well. Um, which is interesting because I would not i I wouldn't have predicted that. And I say I wouldn't have predicted it because I would have I would have said if you asked me before that happened, it should go. Well, I have said that we're not ready to vote with apps yet, but at the same time, I do kind of feel that we are. I mean, the technology, there's certainly no reason why the technology isn't there, but it kind of goes back to my original point. We have technology that does a task, but then the people who build it and maintain it, how well are they, um, how well are they really constructing the technology to the true spirit of its intent. And I don't mean to make that sound like a very fancy way of saying um, we got an app built by the lowest bidder. But in a way, that's what I'm saying is, you know, the technology, um, the technology should work if it's done correctly, right? You have logins, you have security authorization, all that normal stuff that you have to make sure is in there. And since you and I are both, you know, software developers, we understand all of the complexities. You know, you have to, you know, communicate back to the user if an error took place and, you know, what to do given a certain error and all these different things. Um, and here we are with this gig economy stuff. And I, 
Part of me wanted to believe that when we did finally roll out the first voting with technology from our apps, because, and you know, the benefit here is people don't have to make difficult trips to voting booths. You know, I never thought about how hard that was for some people, but you know, in the last couple of elections that comes up a lot, um, people struggling to get there, especially senior citizens, um, how much easier it is to just be like, Oh, let me file, fire up my app. Here it goes. It knows on me how, by whatever process I voted. Now I'm done. I didn't even have to leave the living room. Um, kind of to your point a minute ago, automation, right? We want to make things more frictionless. We want to make it as easy as possible to get your job done without having to have lots of people in the middle or lots of, you know, steps or clicks or whatever it is. Um, and I'm surprised and disappointed, I think. I had trepidations that were different about a technology standpoint from voting right now, just because of all the stuff we're dealing with, with you know foreign hacking. And um, it's kind of tumultuous right now with that kind of like technological espionage stuff going on, which is really happening. But I was disappointed that the failures were just from an from a user experience standpoint. And obviously, they they, they couldn't get all the systems syncing. I, I, I know that they had problems with the technology. I don't know the full deep dive on it, but I was disappointed that it wasn't necessarily a security concern or um, external threat concern, but simply they built crapware <laughs> to do it. And that is my other, with technology, is we have to have people who are willing to take the time. Now, anybody who listens to this show knows, um, and it, you know, if, if you're a developer or you work in technology, that you you have to set your goals, you know, if you do it through, you know, stand-ups and sprint and all that. But a lot of times people cut corners because they're trying to make that first quarter deadline or whatever it is. Um, but we know really you should write your tests and, you know, you should always put quality over um, speed uh, or velocity. Um, but I... I'm disappointed to see that the first go that we had failed, not due to some major threat, but because it was just crappy code. I think they even had the app on the test flight still or something like there was, you know, the the uh, the um, provisioning profile, I think, was still on the test flight. So, some something weird like that that caused a bunch of issues. I mean, look, we. You know, we talk about society not advancing in order to complement the exponential growth of technology. I mean, we still in an industry, in our industry, we work for you know companies, and a lot of times those companies still view IT as a service rather than as a part of the business. And when you view IT as a service, you're stuck in this contractor control mechanism, and or it's contractor control model, I should say, and that ultimately ends up uh, with giving you the deadline before you have the requirements and the core requirements end up being this big book at the beginning. And yeah, you're doing agile as a development team, but the business around you is still looking at ways to control those outcomes. And as a result, you end up in situations where you do have to cut corners. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm actually not surprised that that happened. Um, I'm surprised that it was as bad as it was. Um, but I'm not actually surprised that that happened at all before me. You got something to say, Bo? Uh, I was just going to say in keeping with the theme of the show. And I bring that up because I do fall on the side of not, not, extremely, but that most of our problems can be solved with technology. Not all of them. We have a lot of social problems that get baked into the technology. The, ha the social stuff has to be fixed first before you can start introducing technology to sort of uh, make s streamline certain processes and things like that. But um, yeah, no, I, I, and I am a little bit more on the side of let's use technology everywhere as possible. And let's, for me, if there's a problem, 
my first question is, can we solve it with technology? If not, then we move on and we go on to whatever other solutions might be available. But I always think technology first. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree with some of the, some of the, like what I was saying earlier, but you get these big ideas and that's always a great place to start. And then you just sort of scale it back. So it's kind of, um, it makes me very impatient and very frustrated when we have opportunities to prove that technology can do the job. And these are human errors. These aren't technology errors. And that's kind of the point that I wanted to try and get around to was that, um, Technology always has to be, for now, built by people. And when the systems are being rushed through, and like to your point, when you have um, these service models where technology is just, you know, you, we're going to pay you. And basically, it's still waterfall, no matter how how many different ways you try to, you know, shape it in between. Um it's really frustrating to me because I do, I am one of the people that thinks that technology is, is a great way to look at solving most of our problems. And certainly people can argue and debate me with that, and I would love to, um, but that is definitely the stance that I have on it. So on a positive note, I'll end this on a positive note um, as we wrap this episode up. Uh, my primary complaint with the cult of the singularity is this idea that exponential growth is a universal law and that exponential growth yields eternal returns on technological impact. But there is something that seems to be, at least on the surface value, a little more important than exponential growth. Um, I recently listened to a Long Now Foundation um, talk from Andrew McAfee, who has a book called More From Less. And what he has focused on, and he has a ton of graphs and charts actually showing this, is this idea of dematerialization, which to Peter Diamandis' credit, dematerialization is one of his six Ds that he talks about that leads to kind of this exponential growth uh, curve. And so as things go digital, they actually use less resources. And that's one of the primary keys to what McAfee sees is kind of getting more from less. The uncoupling of resource utilization from growth is actually what helps position us where although our growth is kind of hitting that hockey stick, the resource utilization in order to reach that growth is actually leveled off and gone down. And so if you have the opportunity, you want to see how technology does positively impact things and actually may lead towards a much better future, maybe not a year, one million future, but more like an age of AI future, um, go ahead and check out that talk or, re or uh, go read his book, More From Less. Um, it, it's, it's a pretty nicely detailed look at despite the turmoil that we currently see our world in with climate change and with the scarcity things are actually getting better um, we are actually seeing positive trend lines um, so i'm going to leave you all on that note and uh, do you have any final words bill i do not all right well until next time talk to everyone later take care everybody that's it for this episode of Code Punk. You can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher, or listen to it on the web at codepunk.io. You can find Bill on Twitter at Norathustra and Michael on Twitter at Zool. 